pouring from the buildings now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I, I really need to leave. So the fences inform me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. episode of the fire and water podcast a proud member of the fire and water podcast network i'm one of your hosts the irredeemable shag and with me as always is the man that i often wonder whatever happened to him mr rob kelly how you doing buddy you were right shag uh, take 21 of the intro was the charm good, good I, job. I knew it would be i had a good feeling about it so <laughs> <laughs> Woo, it's been a long night already <laughs> how you been man i'm doing just great how are you I'm doing fine. Tonight, uh, folks, i got to tell you, we are doing something that Rob and I love doing. We're doing uh, one of our reoccurring segments called Whatever Happened To. These are from the DC Comics Presents line. And, uh, you know, I I was teasing Rob the other day saying, you know, with the, the, you know, we have this new show, Fire and Water Presents. And we're talking about, well, you know, we should probably keep this feed, which is Firestorm and Aquaman, kind of pure and keep the Firestorm and Aquaman content here. But maybe stuff like Zany Haney and stuff that we like to do should move over to Fire and Water Presents. And then Rob goes, let's do whatever happened on Fire and Water next week. I'm like, what? <laughs> what happened to keeping it pure? And he goes, oh, that's different. Huh? What are you, like a, a 15 year old? I just think different. my reasoning was sound, but you didn't agree. So uh, look where we are. We're here. We're doing it. <laughs> So thanks for asking. I'm doing great too. Uh, I I personally have been finding my joy. You know, I'm all about that. And since we're talking about whatever happened to, I happened to go this past week to my local comic shop, and they bought a massive collection. Had to be probably I don't know eight or nine long boxes, all with comics from the 1980s. I mean, dude, if I could have dove in and literally swam in these comics, I would have. It was so much fun, just flipping issue by issue. Just, I, I, I bought so much. I, I, one thing I'm guilty of is buying stuff I already own because I'm like, oh, I'll just buy this because it's so much easier to pay 33 cents for this and read it again than dig it out of six, you know, 42 long boxes. <laughs> Another copy of Quest Probe? I think I will. Oh, my God. Oh, well, you must have saw the Facebook post. Yes, I did buy a copy of Quest Probe. <laughs> 
I bought a copy of Quest Pro number one, and I bought a copy of V number one, both of which I think I have multiple copies of already. But it's sort of like whenever I run across Firestorm number one, I always rescue it from a cheap end. Anyway, so there's a ton of 80s stuff in there, and I, I kind of had to pick and choose finally because I would have bought all of it. And I decided to uh, sort of like what we do here where we, we kind of talk about favorite creators and stuff. So I looked at some independents that I didn't read, and I thought, you know, I love the 80s. I love everything about comics in the 80s. And that's my sweet spot from like, you know, 82 to 95-ish. And so I said to myself, self, um, what, what about finding a comic, a creator that you trust from a book you never read? Because I can reread stuff from the 80s forever, but it's nice to read quote-unquote new stuff. What, what is the old NBC slogan? Um, if, if it's, a, it's a repeat, but it's new to you or something new like to that? New to you or something like that, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I picked out uh, – uh, there was a huge run of books by Mark Evanier called DN Agents. And uh, some of you may be scratching your head, never heard of it. Uh, Buck, Buck Roulette, Buck Roulette Buck referred Roulette. to it as uh, finding it in an archaeological dig. Thanks for that, Buck. But uh, th- this is a comic, sort of like a Teen Titans kind of book. Or even um, reads very much like Next Men, John Burns' Next Men. I'm, I'm, as I'm more of this, I read, I'm like, man, Burns just ripped all this stuff off. But I am enjoying the hell out of this comic. It is a lot of fun. I have pretty much a complete run now. Uh, and also I got some of the ancillary books, Crossfire. Rob, I think you're familiar with that one. Loved Crossfire. That book was my jam. Was it really? Okay. I, I bought every. I have every issue of it. And and what would be the hook for you? Well, a lot of things. Dan Spiegel did the artwork. Here we go. Uh, I, li- I like the fact that it was kind of like an adventure book as opposed to superheroes. And uh, the back of the book had uh, these columns by Mark Evanier that were like four or five pages long telling uh, his stories about working in Hollywood. I Uh-oh. ate that stuff up. I didn't know. See, I haven't read the Crossfires yet. In fact, I just read the DNA agents where uh, the new guy just became Crossfire. But uh, so, yeah, I, that actually what, that's what made me find it was I came across the Crossfire issues first and it said Mark Evanier and Dan Spiegel. I'm like, well, that's a win right there. And then I figured out it was a spinoff of DNA agents and it all just kind of came together. And I think I bought like 40, 45 comics. I don't know. But I'm about 10 issues in and I am really loving it. I am finding my joy with DNA agents. And uh, in fact, uh, Diablo Frank made a comment on one of our Who's Who shows like a thousand years ago because uh, I, I was happy to be looking for DNA agents information and I, it, our website came up. How crazy is that? And it was a comment from Frank on a Who's Who episode where he referenced there was a uh, crossover between DNA agents and the New Teen Titans. Did you know this? Uh, there, It's like unofficial, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Sort of like what the Justice League and the Avengers did with, uh, you know, the Heroes of Angor and the uh, Squadron Spot Sinister. Supreme, yeah. Yeah. So... I'm looking forward to getting to that. So anyway, talked a lot about that. Sorry, I'm having fun with it. But, you know, really before we get much further, we should probably take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, or as we should call it, the Whatever Happened to Podcast, but apparently it's on the Fire and Water Podcast feed, anyway, uh, is sponsored in part by Instagram. It's sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Well, I'm going to be talking about Airwave shortly, and so I was trying to find some Airwave comics. Uh, apparently, very little Airwave has ever been reprinted. Uh, wow, they, they didn't reprint Airwave Core and yeah. <laughs> uh, Tales of Airwave and no, Airwave was, The Next Generation and all those books? No Airwave Archive Edition. You just can't please some people. But uh, but he did appear in some issues of Green Lantern, and those have been reprinted, specifically mm. in Showcase Presents Green Lantern Trade Paperback 
Volume 5, which reprints J uh, Green Lantern issues numbers 76 through 100, which means you get all the Neil Adams, Danny O'Neill, you know, quote-unquote, socially relevant stories. Ooh. Plus, some later issues, and those do have Airwave in them. In fact, if you look at the cover to Green Lantern number 100, there's Airwave. So the writers are Danny O'Neill, Elliot S. Mag, and the artists are Neil Adams, Dick Giordano, Mike Grelvins, Coletta, and others. The cover is the, the gloss of number 76, where Green Arrow is bursting Green Lantern's lantern. Uh, the 498 pages in black and white, normal price $19.99, in stock trades price $10.99, 45% off. So for all of you Airwave fans, this is how you're going to get your Airwave fix. <laughs> so uh, you heard it, Al Girding. Go out there and get it. Um, <laughs> uh, I picked something because uh, – actually for two reasons. One is that we're, I'm going to be covering a um, Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter story. That story is written by Mike W. Barr. And Mike W. Barr happened to write one of the companions published by Tomorrow's Publishing. And on the back end of this episode, we're going to do your listener feedback from previous Whatever Happened to installments, including uh, my buddy Star Hawkins. So that led me to the uh, sci-fi – I'm sorry, Silver Age sci-fi companion, again, by Tomorrow's Publishing by Mike W. Barr. Honestly, I'm pretty sure I used the same book last time we did a Whatever Happened to. I don't care. It's so good. I have read this thing um, not twice, but I've read it like one and a half times. I guess I can look at the official in- – I'm, I'm actually looking at the book in my hands. I guess I can look at the entry here. Uh, according to this, it 138 pages, guys. It's awesome. It covers you know all these great characters like Adam Strange and Captain Comet and the Atomic Knights and Star Hawkins and the Space Museum. Museum and uh, oh geez, who else? Uh, the Star Rovers, so many, so many great Silver Age characters. Each one gets like you know a good four or five to ten pages. They tell you sort of the history of the character. Then they break down the individual appearances. Like for Space Museum, I used this book thoroughly when I was on Ryan Daly's uh, Secret Origins podcast about Space Museum. I mean, I really dove in and read every word about the Space Museum, and I learned a lot about it. And by the end of it, even though I hadn't read the stories, I felt like I understood the whole concept and the way it worked. And it, it's just. This book is a real joy, and Mike W.R. writes it from such a happy place. So definitely would recommend it. Again, Silver Age, Sci-Fi Companion by Tomorrow's Publishing. It is, normally retails for $19.99. You can get it for 40% off, so it's only $11.97. Lots and lots of fun. So, folks, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right, so, uh, so just to remind you the premise, DC Comics Presents would print uh, a, a backup feature for a number of issues. Gosh, I, I don't know how many years they did it for, uh, but they would do these backup features called Whatever Happened To. And the premise there was to take a character that had sort of fallen out of publication and give them either you know an eight-page showing you where they've been or maybe a, a story untold tale of them or where they ended up. The theory would be to tell you where they ended up, but that isn't always what happened. So in this case, we are going to start with DC Comics Presents number 39. And that cover is, uh, or the, the main story is Superman and Plastic Man, done by Joe Staten. So I'm surprised you guys, uh, you and Max haven't covered it on your Plastic and Water podcast yet. <laughs> We're working on it. Okay. But the backup story is, in fact, Whatever Happened to Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter. This story is written by Mike W. Barr, penciled by Alex Saviak, inker is Vince Coletta, letter is uh, Costanza, I guess that's John Costanza, uh, letter is Gene D'Angelo, and editor is Julie Schwartz. Now, I gotta be honest with you, I struggle with this a bit. Some of the, <laughs> <laughs> I think Rob, Rob and I were texting back and forth with it. I think you referred to it as the cliffhanger no one demanded be followed up on. I've read a lot of the Whatever Happens to, and most of them are really awesome. 
this one is okay. Uh, so where, where I'm going with this, I, I want to be honest and cop to it, that I borrowed some of my recap from the internet, folks. I went out to the Comics Vines website, and so I owe a huge debt of thanks to Pika Hyper. Thank you, Pika Hyper, who wrote their write-up of this story. So I've stolen bits. Not, it's not whole cloth, but I've stolen quite a bit from there because it did make it a little easier summarizing it. So, whatever happened to Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter? The story jumps around a bit with time periods, so I'm going to do my best. It starts with Richard Dragon retelling his history. As a young man, Richard Dragon was a thief. He broke into, Jap- uh, into a Japanese temple to steal a priceless jade Buddha. There he met O Sensei and his student Ben Turner. When Richard Dragon attempted to murder them both, Turner uh, humbled Dragon by defeating him with his martial arts. Rather than turning Richard Dragon over to the authorities, the O Sensei took him in, and he trained Dragon in the martial arts arts. Later, Dragon and Ben Turner moved to New York and opened their own martial martial arts school together. Now, from time to time, they would use their kung fu, I love that, uh, in the employ of Barney Ling. And this was this massive, oversized dude. He was the leader of a spy organization called uh, GOOD. It's an acronym, G-O-O-D. And on on one such assignment, Ben Turner ran off because he, uh, he said his own life was in danger and he didn't want anyone else risking their lives to help him. And Ben then went missing. And, you know, uh, Dragon was really broken up about this. He lost his partner, his buddy, you know. And then much, much later, Ben actually returned. But for some reason, he was now out for Richard Dragon's blood. And he was calling himself the Bronze Tiger. And then uh, shortly after that, people around Dragon began having accidents, sometimes fatal accidents. And to prevent any others from coming to harm, Dragon left the country. And he holed up in a Shaolin monastery. And he's meditating on this necklace he has called the Dragon's Claw. It's a mystic talisman given to him by the by the Osenzai. And uh, his dragon's mind's eye opened, giving him a vision of Ben Turner, who is the man that was responsible for all the violence surrounding his friends uh, back home. Dragon decides to return to New York and solve the mystery of his friend, Ben Turner. And uh, he goes to enlist the assistance of Barney Ling and the spy organization Good. Shockingly, Dragon finds Ben Turner there as the Bronze Tiger. He's now working for Barney Ling. What?! So Dragon and Bronsteiger battle it out, while Ling is revealing himself to be the mastermind behind all of Dragon's problems. The Bronsteiger lunges, but Dragon dodges. The Bronsteiger momentum carries him into Barney Ling, who crashes through the window, falling to his death. And apparently with that, it's a, sort of a spell is broken. With Ling dead, the Bronsteiger has no reason to continue to fight. Then we find out this entire retelling that Richard Dragon's been doing has been done at the gravesite of Barney Ling. And Richard Dragon then speaks of how Ben Turner is recovering, and he apologizes for Ling's accidental death. He didn't intend for him to die. Then Richard Dragon leaves in a super cool move, like the way he leaps. And uh, then the gravediggers lower Ling's coffin into the ground, and suddenly they lose their grip, and the coffin crashes open, and they find out that the grave, uh, the, the coffin is actually empty, which begs the question, whatever happened to Barney Ling? Woo! All right. What do you think of this one, buddy? Well, this is an important story because we remember that after this story, this led to the uh, whatever happened to Barney Ling crossover event where yeah, it went oh, yeah. across all the titles and, you know, DC, Superman and Justice League and Batman. It was just this endless search for the Barney Ling thing. It was, you know, before Crisis. It was the big it was sort of like event, so. It was sort of like Zatanna search for her father, but yeah. probably bigger. I mean, <laughs> I think they even dug the green team out of, and brought them back for it. <laughs> uh, okay. Unlike our fellow network uh, podcaster, Siskoid, I enjoy the works of, of Mike W. Barr. Um, <laughs> I do, too. Th- this is not one of his best efforts, uh, but just because there's this is just very silly. <laughs> this whole story this is very silly. I don't even know if it's silly. It's just not that interesting. Um, and it's it's accidentally goofy. I don't know. I have, There's a bunch of things I could mention. I don't know where you want me to start. The, the number one thing I think about is page three. 
where it's the close up where he's talking about his friends had quote unquote accidents. Yeah. And like, first of all, when it, like, there's like a car that comes through a brick wall and smashes two people, like it looks like a little more than an accident. Right. And then there's another one where he's getting dinner. Now he must be at a, like a fancy place because he's not in his uniform for once in the restaurant. This, it's like the only panel he's yeah. not. You're right. He must, be at, he must be at an Applebee's or something. And the waiter is getting <laughs> waiter's getting shot. And it's like I really don't think he gets called an accident. The third one though is my favorite is where he's in his costume and he's watching another guy get punched and it looks like he's just getting his mail. Like that's exactly what he's doing. He's getting the, his mail out of his mailbox. That's the most tedious thing to do with your superhero costume. on. <laughs> Richard Dragon's like, ooh, my cassettes from the Columbia Record and Tape <laughs> <laughs> He's all excited. It's just like, oh, my God. It's just silly. And, okay, the organization, uh, the evil, evil organization called Good, guys, right. well, uh, you're, you're, you're being too clever by half, guys. Now, come on. It's not <laughs> off. The Barney Ling thing, clearly Barney Ling is kind of like um, a Sidney Greenstreet character from all those Humphrey Bogart movies. In fact, the first panel we see of Barney Ling is a very Sidney Greenstreet panel where it's like under his big jowls and he looks all kind of – and he's in his suit, stuff like that. So that's clearly what they're – I think my bar is, is referencing a bit. But well, He's got his martini glass and a cigar. Right. He's got a woman behind him and but, all that. Yeah. yeah, the whole idea of ending the story on whatever happened to Barney Ling is, is like I, – I literally had to read the story like two or three times before I could remember who Barney Ling even was. And the uh, story's only eight pages long. Right. So – but to be fair to this feature – like the last episode that we did had the Crimson Avenger one, which was yeah. I think is one of the best stories DC has ever printed. Period. Not just like the best whatever happened to one of the best comic stories they ever did. So they can't all be winners. So this well, one is, this one's just very goofy. And before that, we had Rex the Wonder Dog. That was great. With, with, yeah, with Detective Chimp, and we had Star, and, and we had Star Hawkins, which I still think is an excellent one as well. So uh, Johnny Thunder, the Johnny Thunder one. Was oh really my gosh, good. there've Johnny been a Thunder. lot of good ones. This this is why we wanted to talk about this trip is that there was a lot of interesting stuff here. They and the ones that are not particularly great are to me enjoyable in just a very silly, goofy way. I love that he goes to the grave in his costume. That just seems so. Well, disrespectful. I love I love the third panel when he's leaving. He's just like total action leap. It's like he's <laughs> leaving a, an open grave, and he's just like, "Woo, you know, kung fu!" You know. <laughs> so I I don't know. There's a lot more to say. I, Mike W. Barr, love him. Alex Saviak, sorry Frank, I love him too. So uh, this one didn't quite work out the way I hoped. I, you know, but, but that's okay. The, hey, the front story. Uh, Plastic Man and Super and Superman. I flipped through it. It looks like a total hoot. That's so the issue is not a bust. No, no, yeah, and, I, and I've, I talked about it in previous installments, and Frank always gave me an argument, surprise, surprise, about it. But, like, where I was saying that Alex Saviak is a great penciler who was often saddled with pretty bad anchors. And as we saw in the Crimson Adventure story where he was inked by Dennis Jensen, that artwork looks great. Yeah. And, and here he's inked by Vince Coletta, and Vince Coletta at this phase of his career was just hacking stuff out. It's this, you know, I mean, I've seen people make arguments for Vince Coletta, like, oh, you know, in his heyday he was really good. Maybe so. In fact, I've seen some stuff that it was very good. But at this stage, he was clearly the guy to get things done We needed when you needed eight pages to get done in a day and a half. Right. And that's what it looks like because all, like, all the – you know, the stuff is just simplistic to the point of, of, of a coloring book. And yeah. so uh, I think there's some interesting layouts here, which would be the work of Saviak. Like I like the close-up of his face with the, with the detailed panels. Uh, and I like seeing things like through the – like the eye – like the – 
literally like his eyeball kind of like where he's got a, like his eyelids are opening like I like that but it's just the inking it just reduces all that interesting stuff to just these very stiff figures so yeah now I um one of the things we haven't talked about is, and I wish I'd done this in hindsight now. I've got something in my hands. I've never read an issue of Richard Dragon before. I don't know much about the character other than like he appeared in the question. So, but he's a phenomenon that you can't deny. I mean, he gets referenced a lot, especially in the 80s, but I never knew much about him. So I've, I do wish I had done a little more research around the front end. And just now I was flipping through. Uh, I, I bought a bunch of uh, cheap comics on my world tour. And while I was with uh, uh, Kyle Benning, in Iowa, I did find an issue of Kung Fu Fighter, which I bought. I've got issue number two, Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter number two, in my hands. And I wish I had read it beforehand, because it, w- it might be interesting to sort of compare where they were going. It, uh, Denny, and ne- Denny O'Neill, um, Al Milgram, Jim Starlin, and Alan Weiss. You know, that's a pretty good combination right there. So I would be interested to know if anyone here who's listening is a fan of Richard Dragon. Write in, tell us the appeal, what you loved about the character, and tell us why his story, ne- why this story needed to be told, why it was so critical. You know, obviously Ben Turner turned evil and all that. Was that in the original Kung Fu series, or was that uh, something that was added in here? I'm curious. All right, should we move on to the next one? I think we should. Yeah. All right. All right. So the next one is from uh, DC Comics Presents number forty, which was uh, the front story was Superman and Metamorpho. I wonder if that had anything to do with the fact that it was Superman and Plastic Man, the previous issue. But uh, anyway, this story is Whatever Happened to the Original Airwave by Bob Rosakis, the answer man. Penciler Alex Savick, inker Vince Coletta, letterer John Costanza, colorist (laughs) Jerry Serpe, and the editor is Julia Schwartz. So, uh, yeah, the opening page is a nice collage of Airwave in his uh, his, uh, normal guise as a Larry Jordan. And then we see him punching a crook and running the – Writing the telephone lines, and then with the young boy smashing windows. So it's kind of a nice collage of just all the different things that Airwave has been doing. So anyway, the story is, D.A. Larry Jordan, a.k.a. Airwave, is eager to test out the improvements he's made to his superhero costume, which gives him additional powers. He turns on an antenna in his helmet, and he picks up a police report about a crime taking place in his very own house. Where he's standing. Where he's standing. He's upstairs in his house. His costume disappears, though, without an explanation, but he doesn't have time to figure out why. He runs downstairs and sees his wife and young son are the hostages of a crook named Joe Parsons, who Jordan put in prison years before. Parsons is about to shoot Jordan's family, but our hero kicks off his shoe, deflecting the shot. (laughs) Parsons fires again, this time right into Jordan's chest, killing him. At the sound of police sirens, Parsons takes off. A short time later, Larry's wife, Helen, frustrated that Parsons has not been caught, dons her husband's airwave costume and searches for her husband's murderer. She's wobbly at first, trying to ride on telephone wires like her husband did, but soon she finds Parsons' apartment. Knowing she can't overpower him via muscle, she grabs a nearby wall lamp and smashes Parsons with it, knocking him out. The police arrive, and while Airwave uses her cape to hide her obviously female form, the cops take Parsons away, and they thank Airwave for solving the case, not noticing that this is not the same Airwave that they're familiar with. Later, Helen Jordan puts her her husband's costume aside, seeing that Airwave is retired. Or at least he is until their son Hal can take up the mantle. Dun, dun, dun. That's the end of the story. It moves. Uh, before we started this, I was sort of curious as to the the origins of this because, of course, Airwave, the new Airwave, had a strip in the back of Action Comics, mm-hmm. and I was interested of like, well, did they? Now I knew that the Airwave strip started before this, but I, I was wondering about the genesis of it. Like, did they decide? Did they want to bring Airwave back? And then give him a new hero, make him a new hero, or did they bring up a new hero and then they were like, oh, geez, we should 
kill off the old one and explain that or something. So I actually reached out to the answer man, Bob Rosakis, and of course he answered my questions because, as I said, he's the answer man. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, yes, I was scheduled to do all the backups in Action Comics, Airwave, Aquaman, and the Atom. See, we mentioned Aquaman, Fire and Water. He says, but I did, <laughs> he says, but I did not have a lock on all the whatever happened to stories. I did most of the early ones because I was jo- Julie's go-to guy for backups. But as the series grew, other writers came in and said, can I do this one? The Airwave one, however, was a natural for me since I did the regular regular series in Action Comics. So now that explains it, is that they did the new Airwave series in the back of Action. And then at some point when they started doing the whatever happened to, they realized, oh, we never really told the story of the old Airwave, so let's do it here. And so they got yeah. Bob to do it. So that that's the, 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 the steps of how this came about. Yeah, and I did a little research too. It's about three years from right. his first appearance, right. Airwave Two, or, or technically it's Airwave Three by this story, but uh, he's called Airwave Two, uh, or the new Airwave. Let's just say that uh, there's about three years between his original premiere and when this when this story was published. So yeah, so uh, very interesting that uh, they'd go so that long and then come back to tell this about what happened to his dad. It had been a really long time since uh, DC had used Airwave. In fact, the last the, the last time the older Airwave appeared was in Detective Comics One Thirty Seven. Way back in 1948. Whoa! So, yeah, so he had been out of commission for over 35 years before they decided to bring him back and, and you know, explain what happened to him because they had already introduced the, the newer one. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, that's a, that's a really long gap. We haven't compared. We need to get, like, a spreadsheet and figure out how long all these characters were gone. But I, I would argue that uh, Airwave is up there in terms of the longest gap between appearances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the story is a little strange in that like, there's the whole bit where his costume disappears, and they don't explain what that is or why that happened. It just happens. Like, okay. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of my questions, too. Okay, yeah. It just, I, I, I read the story a couple of times, and I'm like, they don't actually explain what happened to the story. So I'm thinking it must connect up with what happened, uh, some backup strip in, in for Airwave. That, uh, oh, that maybe, that, maybe that's there. an ability of his costume maybe, to something like vanish that. from yeah. his body and go to his dresser or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty brutal watching Larry Jordan take a bullet to the chest in front of his family. Like, right. It's a pretty nasty thing. Uh, and it's kind of interesting how quickly the wife decides to become Airwave. Like she just says, "Like okay, I guess I'm Airwave now." Like wow, that was, it was like the next day. Yeah, that was that was fast. Uh, it's incredibly goofy that she's in Joe Parsons' apartment and she's trying to hide the fact that it's a woman, and everyone <laughs> buys into it. Now, how dumb are they? I mean, I don't care how much you use a cape to cover up your form. These guys are cops. I mean, they yeah. can't figure that out. And the worst part is, and this is where I hate to keep kind of picking on uh, Vince Coletta here, but they keep talking about how like dark and dank the apartment is, but right. the thing is colored like in these Dago bright colors with oh, yeah. very little detail, so it doesn't look like that at all. And like, in fact, there's one panel where you see her like very female lips, and you're like, how is anybody thinking this is a man? Now, come on, guys. So. Well, it- and also, it's drawn. I mean, it's, it doesn't look like a woman wearing a man's clothes. It is very form fitting. It yeah. is tail- tailored for a woman. I mean, I might even go as far as to say as she's hot. I mean, th- she's proving Rule sixty three of the internet for us here. You know, it's and it. it it, I had the same struggles you did with the lighting and just looking going, how could the cops not think that's a – what? Clearly the scripting was done far before the pencils because yeah. it just doesn't match. When, when, she's, when she's crawling out the window and she's saying, he officer, he's all yours. Thank And then the guys go, thanks, Airwave. And then he thinks, <laughs> funny, I always thought he was bigger. Maybe it's the bad lighting in here. And he's literally looking right at her butt. <laughs> He's looking right – the cape is not even – so it's like, come on, guys. You know, this is just – yeah. so that part doesn't really 
work at all. But, you know, I don't know. For some weird reason, I have, like, a... I like Airwave. I don't really know why. I, there's something about the costume. It's just so goofy. Not goofy. I, I take that back. It's not goofy. I, I actually I like it. I think it's dynamic. I it's like classic. The, yeah, I like the black gloves. It's a very superhero costume. I like the antenna. I don't know. I kind of <laughs> dig it. I, I I know that they recently, they you know, eventually kind of... You know, when they redid Airwave and they gave him new... Like, he actually had superpowers. And they eventually converted his costume into, like, the blue... Right. And yellow lightning bolt thing, which you saw in Who's Who. But I don't know. I, I just have a, a soft spot for this this older character. So I feel bad that he was sort of killed off so unceremoniously. Uh, but at least he died saving his family, which is not a bad way to go, you know, or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's a kind of say, it's a dark, violent little story that, that, you know, moves at lightning pace. It's, it's only eight pages long. Well, I've got a soft spot for this character as well. And I know where exactly where it comes from. It comes from Who's Who. Because I love that idea of legacy. Even as a, as, as a young lad, apparently legacy was something I was going to latch on to. It's the first and legacy I, listing in Husu, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that idea that a father passed it on to his son. And it always stuck out with me in my head because I'm like, well, wait a minute. His name's the second one. His name's Hal Jordan? What? Mm. So – and there is a big piece of goofy, goofy continuity that I've never really put together. Is He's Hal Jordan's cousin, but he's on Earth too. So how does that work? I, I don't know doesn't really matter. shouldn't think too much about it. Make your head hurt. Some things I liked in this, I love that as the district attorney, the dad, the airwave one, that he wears a fake mustache. <laughs> he does, yeah. Because normally when you have a superhero, like they wear, you know, it's like they, they change their look to be a hero. Whereas this guy changes his look to be a normal guy. I guess it's sort of a Clark Kent thing. I guess that's his version of glasses. Huh, I didn't think about it that way. But uh, yeah, I just love that he puts on a fake mustache. I love that his wife knows he's airwave. You know, the home invasion part is just really scary to me. And, and I don't mean just in a general sense like clockwork orange eggs. But just to the idea of having someone else in your home that doesn't belong. And it, when they're there, they, they seem larger than life, taking up the whole room and they're just invading your personal space. That's a, it's a terrifying idea. So to, to be upstairs and find out there's someone in your house, you know, ring, ring, you know, have you checked the children? They're calling from inside the house, that kind of thing. It's just terrifying. So that spooked me. As you said, dark, disturbing. Yeah, I mean, at one point, Parsons, he's, got, he's pointing his gun at an infant. A child, yeah. You know? Well, not an infant because the kid can talk. But, uh, you know, well, probably a toddler. A, I mean, a small, probably, yeah, a small toddler, child. Yes. I mean, it's yes. like, wow, that's, again, that's pretty, you know, he's pretty nasty. And, again, you don't – we didn't generally see – Heroes die that gruesomely. I mean, the panel where he gets shot is he did. There's no hiding it. He takes a bullet right in the chest. Now it's bloodless because it's a comics code proof book, and it's undercut a little by the fact that in the previous panel, Larry kicks off his shoe. That just looks really silly, but you know, at high velocity, no at less. high high velocity. But I mean, you know, the first time I read this story, which probably was when I was a kid, and then when I read it again for this podcast, I was like, "Oh, geez, Larry gets it right there. Like he's dead by page four. Like, ooh, wow." I imagine that panel when he's kicking off his shoe. There should have been a thought between like, "Thank goodness I'm wearing my loafers today." Yeah, but just, um, oh boy. And then like the kid is looking at the newspaper that talks about yeah. his dad dead. Because the kid's too young to understand, but it's like, oh, that's dark. <laughs> Daddy's in the newspaper. Is he coming home soon? You know, yeah. he's, oh. Oh, he's in the obituary. I like, he's like, oh, I liked how they tried to explain how his wife uh, was able to function as airway, basically saying all her ballet training was coming in handy as she leapt around the room to fight the guy. Mm -hmm. And then I actually really liked the scene. I thought it was very well il illustrated when she's swinging the lamp by the power cord. Mm hmm. She swings the lamp by the power cord and smashes it into the bad guy. And apparently uh, connecting with the gun, 
which I don't know if that's actually conducts electricity or not. But anyway, uh, hits the gun and electrocutes the guy and fries him, knocks him out. So that's yep. pretty cool. And if you look at this story versus the previous one, exact same art team. I just feel like there's more dynamic stuff going on here. The figures look better than the figures previously. Like may, maybe because uh, Savick maybe had trouble drawing the muscle-bound kung fu guys. I don't know, but the guys didn't really look right in proportions. Whereas these characters all look much better. I mean, as I mentioned, she's hot. She looks great in the costume. He looks good as Airwave. In fact, I really like um, on page two the bottom right-hand panel. It's the one where he's got his little. Uh, Antennas are zapping electricity back and forth, mm-hmm. telling him that there's someone in his house. I love that panel. That's a great little panel right there of airwaves. It looks very – it's a good heroic upshot, you know. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, 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 It's a bit of a goofy story, but it was fun. So I'm happy with it. Well, Saviak also drew the airwave strip in the back of action, so yes, he had more experience with the character. That's true. That's a good point. So fun stuff. One win, one not so win. <laughs> Again, I, you know, any series that features that Crimson Avengers story – is already like that one's throwing off the curve, but there's so many other good ones, and we're not done yet. We have we still have a couple more stories in this uh, series to go, and there's a couple other winners left in here. So yeah, I, I I really enjoyed looking at all these. I mean, obviously you and I have a greater hankering than even most nerds for for DC history. <laughs> yes, we're doing the Who's Who podcast now in its 70, 75th year. Uh, so, you know, but it, so I just enjoy them going into their vaults and digging out these old characters. I love the idea that this was a character that had not appeared in 35 years. Like that to me is just inherently interesting. Now he would then shortly after this appear and I think an all-star squadron, didn't he? He did come back in all-star squadron and that was it. Like he had those, you know, flashback appearances and then, uh, never again. Wow. All right. Well. Fun stuff. I love these whatever happened to. I mean, these are sort of our proto who's who. I mean, yep. the, you know, one of the arguments is the reason they did these whatever happened to was to keep the copyrights going. And then uh, then they stumbled upon the who's who idea where they're like, oh, we could really keep the copyrights going here now. So, yep. All right. So, folks, we are going to take a podcast promo break. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to do your listener feedback from the previous two whatever happened to segments. I guess the podcast is getting into the public's ear. Wish I could do more to promote the DC Comics Presents show. Maybe it's time to do another promo. I'll do it right now. Interruptions, always interruptions. Hello. Yes, this is Russell Bragg. Yes, I host the DC Comics Presents show. How can I help you? Let me get this straight. You want to write a newspaper article on me and my show? Well, how can I help you? Well, let's see. The DC Comics Presents show is a podcast covering the DC Comics Presents comic book starring Superman. In it, Superman teams up with any number of characters in the DC Comics universe. I also have a few segments I've added. I do listener feedback. I have a segment called Russell's Comic Brag, where I brag about a comic that I recently picked up. I do a spotlight on Superman's guest. Every once in a while, I have to do a hostess ad. And to round out the show, I go to the comic spinner rack to see what other comics were on sale. Thanks for reminding me. I guess that would be important on how people can find the show. People can go to the show's main website at www.bragaboutcomics.com. They can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away, 
From 1977 to 1986, Marvel Comics published comics based on the blockbuster movie hit Star Wars. Hey, I remember that comic. But Star Wars was not the only comic Marvel published based on someone else's property. Really? Tell me more. I will. I'll tell you much more in podcast form. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, a podcast covering Marvel's licensed publishing during the first Star Wars era. Like what? Well, Star Wars, of course. Of course. And Micronauts. Classic. Rom. Space Knight. Better than it should be. Shogun Warriors. No idea what it is, but it sounds awesome. John Carter, Warlord of Mars. I've heard of that. Star Trek. Motion picture era, isn't it? Godzilla. That was a comic? Man from Atlantis. So, Aquaman. Jack Kirby's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wait. Really? That's a thing? A human fly. What? He was a real-life stuntman. You're just making stuff up now, aren't you? I wish I were. And there's much, much more. Anyway, join comic book fan, collector, and writer Ben Avery as he explores the good, the bad, and the ugly of Marvel's licensed sci-fi comics. Marvel's Cosmic Comics, found wherever you catch your podcasts and on the web at comicbooktimemachine.com. folks we are back and we are to what is the most important part of the show which is your part of the show because as rob and i have said since the beginning the fire and water podcast community is exactly what it's all about it's about all of us sharing our thoughts sharing our ideas and in this case you guys are helping us celebrate the previous whatever happened to stories so we wanted to cover the feedback from the last two segments of whatever happened to uh one of these goes back almost a full year by the way so first uh, first one we're going to touch on is from fire and water podcast episode 169 which is whatever happened to Star Hawkins and Rex the Wonder Dog. Uh, we got a message from Joe X. He says, Star Hawkins is like Bruce Willis's character from Last Boy Scout. <laughs> okay. You guys should have gotten Chris Bird from Mighty God King as a guest for the Rex story. His site, MightyGodKing.com, has Rex versus Crocodile as the header. <laughs> Rob's Bobo Speak reveals he watched Battle of the Planets as a kid. I did. Rex booted Alan Scott out of Green Lantern. That's how awesome he is. <laughs> now, quick thing about Star Hawkins is Bruce Willis's character from Last Boy Scout. That's an interesting observation because that's the kind of a character who can't win kind of thing. Believe it or not, if you ever read James Robinson, before he did Starman, he did a title for Malibu for the Ultraverse called Firearm, which is exceptional. It's very good. It was very much a proto-Starman series. In fact, if you're a Starman fan, you've got to read Firearm. It's, it's like reading the first half of it. Anyway, uh, he has a character there named Alex Swan whose look is exactly based on Bruce Willis from Last Boy Scout. So, like, he's even got the cut in the eyebrow, the whole thing. Okay. I, yep. no, I saw that movie, but I have no memory of it. Okay. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez wrote in to say, This is what I'm talking about. Bo and Luke back together after giving Coy and Vance the boot. I think he's talking about Frank and uh, uh, Ryan or something. Uh, he says, I quite enjoy these whatever happened to shows. Maybe you can do one on your heads of hair. Ouch. Why are we friends with him? I don't I Well, you are. Yeah, I have hung out with him quite a few times. Okay. Then we heard from our buddy Chuck Coletta, who wrote in to say, Star Hawkins and Ilda were seen to good effect again in the 1990s miniseries Twilight by Howard Chaikin and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. It's a much more adult story featuring a number of DC classic space heroes, such as Tommy Tomorrow, Space Cabbie, Space Ranger, the Star Rovers, and Manhunter 2070. Then he goes on to say, somewhere along the lines, it was revealed that Rex the Wonder Dog was brother to Pooch from the Losers. <laughs> of course he which, was. Well, well, we touched on that a lot when we did Who's Who, so it's definitely something we're talking about. And he goes, for upcoming canine uh, hijinks, check out Scooby-Doo Team Up number 18, where Scooby-Doo meets up with Crypto, Ace the Bat Hound, Wonder Dog from the Super Friends, Nort, and the Space Canine Patrol Agency. And I got to say, I bought that issue, believe it or not, months ago because my daughter saw it on the stands, and she saw Nort. And she just thinks Nort is the cutest thing and funniest idea ever. And if you haven't read Scooby-Doo Team Up, 
it is one of the most joyful comics uh, that DC's published in many, many years. I highly series. recommend it. Great series. Shally, yep. Shally Fish, the writer. Great series. Yep. Heard from our buddy Jeff Nettleton, who I don't think we've heard from actually in a long, long time. I hope he's doing okay. He wrote in to say, uh, it's Ilda, because I was questioning how you say the uh, robot assistant's name. It's Ilda. She's obviously inspired by Mike Hammer's secretary, Valda. Hmm, interesting. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. He says, I would second Rob's theory about Gil Kane wanting to do this, meaning the Rex the Wonder Dog segment. It had to be a nice change of pace from what he had been doing for a long time. Uh, all right. Then we heard from our buddy Paul Hicks from Down Under. He says, I was always interested in the classic DC space characters, but never really read much of them. I remember being excited in the early 90s when the new miniseries was announced that brought them all together. Twilight, it's been mentioned a couple times now, by Howard Chaykin. Updated, sleazed, and de-charmed. I hated that book. Only comic I ever returned to the store. <laughs> wow! That is strong words. I didn't know that uh, Australia had a return policy. So um, Then Dr. Ange uh, came in to say, everyone's talking about Twilight, so I'll jump in too. I'm a big fan of Chaykin, so I was very much like Twilight. It helped that I, didn't have, I, that I didn't have much history with these silly 50s characters, so seeing them completely grimy was fine. I was younger then too, so ready to accept a deconstruction, uh, or some might say destruction, of these properties. The whole thing is drenched in sleaze, fascism, religion, and talking cats. In other words, a chicken comic. I'm pretty sure that Shag has been promising to read this miniseries for two years running. Now keep in mind, that quote is a year old. <laughs> so uh, now it's three years running. It is still sitting here right next to my chair, right next to my desk, in the uh, to-be-read bookshelf. And, I, and Ange, I don't know what it is. It's, some, it's daunting for some reason. It's like I want to read it, but whenever I sit down to read I fall asleep. And I know that's a book I don't want to do that with. Okay. Ange continues, but to be more on topic, I thought the Rex issue – I bought the Rex issue off the rack back in the day. I loved DCCP. I loved team-ups team ups with weirder characters, and Man Bat fit the bill. When I read the Rex story as a kid, I hated it for the insanity it was. A thinking dog and chimp drinking a fountain of youth and becoming astronauts? Come on, get serious. <laughs> when I – when I reread the story recently, I almost wept with joy. Just great, Aww. great stuff. Indeed, as Bob Haney as DCCP ever got, how odd that an old man, Ange, can appreciate the sweet craziness more than grade school, Ange. Thanks for covering. You know, his little recap right there just brought all that joy right back. Yeah. You know what great. he meant? It, it, was, it was the mention of the astronauts, which was just like, oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my pal Daniel Budnick, uh, he does a bunch of different shows. You should all check out uh, – Check them all out. They're all related to uh, TV ephemera, and I'm on a couple of them right now talking about the old the Police Squad TV series. And he oh. says, uh, all good stories should end with the main characters going to the moon. <laughs> I think that's, that's true. I think that's Daniel's worldview for the most part. Well, I like that he says, except for episodes of The Honeymooners, Alf doesn't need uh, Ralph seeing her there. So that's good. That's Send, fine. Sending her there. Right. So, thank you. Everyone got the joke. But uh, Michael Bailey wrote in to say, these stories sounded like they were so much fun. Goofy, but fun. And then he goes on to talk about the author of some of these, uh, Mike Tiffenbacher, who we have praised before. And he points out that he also wrote Whatever Happened to Prince Rahman and Whatever Happened to Johnny Thunder. We love that one. Love that and one. Whatever Happened to Rip Hunter. We didn't love that one as much. But he says uh, he has a few credits in the DC's New Talent Showcase as well. Now, I come across the New Talent Showcase quite often in the cheap bins. And I think now I'm going to have to like flip through them and try and find the Tiffenbacher stories. Our pal Martin Gray writes in. He says, top show. First off, congrats to Rob finally getting us the Brennard book. 
I'm not ready to go that far, but okay. Uh, you did and, on a you did on a previous episode. Well, that okay. And speaking of Alan, uh, well, it's mainly due to a lawsuit from Mr. Brenner, but I can't talk about that. He says, and speaking of Alan, he's also a friend of Mike Tiefenbacher. There he is again. Uh, when were you trying? When you were trying to track him down? Maybe you misspelled his name. He's on Facebook and just had a birthday. Hearing about the show would likely have him chuffed to bits. Uh, well, not to tell tales out of school, but I actually did friend Mr. Tiefenbacher on Facebook. And uh, I sent him a, a note telling him that we've been profiling these stories and we would we just sort of said, you know, I, we'd love to reach out to you. We'd love to talk to you in case you're interested. And he never got back to me. So I just dropped it at that point. Well, I can. I mean, it is you. Keep in mind, he probably like went to your Facebook wall and went, whoa, no, thank you. So quite possible. <laughs> and then Martin goes on to say, as regards Joe's comment uh, up top about Rex booting Alan Scott out of Green Lantern, that wasn't Rex. It was Streak the Wonder Dog. And while um, he did take over the covers, and he goes, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if his popularity in the late 40s led DC to create Rex the Wonder Dog in 1952. How interesting is that? I thought Rex booted Green Lantern out of there as well. Yeah, I don't think I knew that either. Her former buddy Zoom Yukinori he wrote in to say, I actually enjoyed Twilight myself, both for, both for the art by Jose Luis Garci- Garcia Lopez, praise, praise be his name, name, and the richly complex, albeit dark and sleazy story by Howard Chaikin. You know that word keeps coming up, <laughs> this story is sleazy. Have you read it? I have not. I, I really want to. I just never gotten around to it. Well, I love all these characters, and pretty much they're all featured in that sci-fi companion I pimped in the beginning of the show. Uh, he goes, well, I did enjoy the series for what it was. I did, however, also not care for the modernization of these futuristic Silver Age characters I enjoyed reading about in my youth. So I simply view this story as taking place in a parallel universe. And if Shag thought that Ilda seemed like a sex spot in the DC Comics Presents backup, dot, 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 dot. Oh, jeez. Oh, yeah, I can mm. only imagine what happens at Twilight there. Okay. Okay. Got a message from Sphinx Magoo. He says, you know, that comment clarifying that Rex the Wonder Dog wasn't the same Wonder Dog as seen on Super Friends sent me on a mental tangent that had Rex as a, Rex as a member of the JLA. It was such a good tangent that I had to rewind the episode because I was in a happy fanfic place for such a long time that I missed what came next. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of the JLA just letting like virtually everybody in. And you're just like, Rex the Wonder Dog becomes a member. I just love this. Sphinx Magoo started writing his own fanfic in his head to the point where he just got distracted. But you know what? It brought him joy. So I, you get a big thumbs up from me, buddy. I'm picturing Rex at the meetings. You know, they're like, okay, let's vote on the next bylaw. Should we let Firestorm in? <laughs> and Superman says, Firestorm's in the league, and I don't care what you say, Rex. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So Ryan Daly wrote in to say, since Rob has the ability to compel DC to collect material created by people interviewed on the Firewater Podcast <laughs> Network, can you please schedule interviews with Tim Truman for Hawkman, uh, Gray Morrow for everything, Dan Mishkin for Wonder Woman and Amethyst, and Jerry Conway for Batman? <laughs> we will do what we can for you, Ryan. You can get some of those people, but as was pointed out, we unfortunately cannot get Mr. Morrow anymore. That's true. Yeah. Now, to be fair, we have had Jerry Conway many yeah. times, right. and uh, I've had Dan Jer- uh, Dan Mishkin on uh, my uh, Once Upon I interviewed him on Once Upon a Geek, which right. was an audio. You know, maybe we should repurpose that someday. I don't know, uh, but it was a great interview about Blue Devil and Amethyst. So I well, interviewed him once. They're too. great. Uh, I'm not, I'm not on great. my uh, Fan of Stranger blog, I interviewed him. Too. Mishkin. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, our pal Chris Franklin from the network says that stinger with Rob doing monkey talk should be the end of every episode. The FW, the FNW network sit, Ubu sit, good boy. And it was for like a while. You used I it do, for quite a while. I do like to, every time it's a whatever happened to, I, I like to run it. <laughs> and how does that sound like? <laughs> I don't remember now. 
<laughs> don't don't ruin the moment. Don't ruin the moment. It goes on. That'd be like Chris's daughter re-recording the ending of their show, where where she says, "Don't sue my mommy and daddy." They 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 knew enough not to re-record that segment because it's just right. pure, that was golden. That that moment they got from her, where she's pure magic with her. Yeah, yeah. I love it. So Chris goes on to say, "I somehow missed the issue with Star Hawkins, and I really wanted that issue as a kid, just based on the cover image from the house ads or the Daily Planet page or something. The Star Hawkins story sounds fun, but even I'm disturbed by Ilda's sexualized nature now, since her head looks like a Stewie Griffin." <laughs> he says, I'm surprised Rob didn't take the opportunity to mention Rex proto membership, weren't you just saying, uh, in the JLA in Justice League of America number 144, <laughs> the super secret origin of the almost Justice League minus one, or whatever it's called. Rex was hanging right there with DC's big gun. He was. He answered the call. See? He, does, he is a Justice League member then. It's perfect. <laughs> Or for our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey, who says, Star Hawkins and Ilda turned up in the new 52. I did not know this. In Keith Giffen's series Threshold, which brought a lot of DC space characters together, including a version of Tommy Tomorrow, Stealth, Blue Beetle, Vril Docs 2, and the acronym Legion. Uh, oh, Lady Sticks, and a version of Captain Carrot that owed a lot to Rocket Raccoon. It was an enjoyable enough eight-issue series with a, quote, running man theme. Star Hawkins had his own three-issue backup near the end of that series, which dovetailed back into the main story. And I think Ilda looked more humanoid in that series. Huh. You know, I, I may have to check that out. I've heard of Threshold. I certainly saw the ads. I saw what they did with Captain Carrot, but I had no idea Star Hawkins is in it and with a backup. Oh, my gosh. Uh, anyway, Jimmy McGlinchey uh, goes on to say, I do remember seeing Rex turn up later in the 1990s. He was in the Green Lantern Flash crossover involving Gorilla Grodd and Hector Hammond, which was early enough in Mark Wade's run. He also turned up in the Shadow Pack run as well, which was no surprise given Detective Jim's role in the same. Jimmy, I'm glad you mentioned that crossover with Flash and Green Lantern because that was actually uh, – I've, I've told this story so many times on this network. Rob could probably tell it for me now, which was my misunderstanding of Rex's importance. Yeah, in, in the canon of DC Comics, because I saw Rex in the DC Who's Who entry, and in my mind, that entry was, you know, he had the same size page as, I don't know, you know Batman. Batman, you know, pretty much. <laughs> so I was like, Rex is obviously important. So that was at the, the comic where I first saw Rex in action was that Green Lantern and Flash crossover with Gorilla Grodd. So when Rex shows up, I'm like, yay, Rex is here to save the day. Because, you know, he's like, <laughs> my name is Rex. I'm here to help. And I'm like, hell yes. And everyone's looking at me going like, what? Why, why do you care? Who is this? And I'm like, it's Rex. It's Rex the Wonder Dog, guys. You know who that is, right? I mean, Superman, <laughs> Batman, Rex the Wonder Dog, Wonder Woman. I mean, that's how that works, right? And no one had a clue. So who's who warped my young mind. <laughs> We're moving on now to the next Whatever Happened To from Fire and Water Podcast number 179, where we cover Rip Hunter and the Crimson Avenger. Yeah, baby. David Ace Gutierrez has so much to say about such an enjoyable episode. You know you're in for a true, and Rob begins a sentence with, I've read a lot of comics in my lifetime, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> he says, loved young Rob's story of the slow walk back to the car for the extra dime. I don't know why, but I picture the youngest of the Von Trapp kids sadly walking to the car while the lonely man, the incredible closing theme, plays in the background. But Pop <laughs> Kelly saved the day. Indeed he did. <laughs> Uh, Ryan Daly wrote in to say, I think Rip Hunter and Dane Dorrance were the only members of the Forgotten Heroes not featured in Secret Origins. Not that anybody remembers that series or ever talks about it anymore. Uh, you know, I seem to recall mentioning that once that podcast was over, somebody was going to be aching and missing that limelight. So uh, <laughs> I think somebody's a little bit sore. Uh, Android in to say, the sample pages definitely shows what an inker can do for Saviak. Coletta's pages are so lacking in detail, they look like coloring books. Meanwhile, the Jensen Ink splash of the Crimson Avenger remembering his past is pretty glorious. I do wish that the Avenger was in the cloak and fedora. And oh, those salad days 
before the internet and cell phones. Today there would be Instagram, Vines, and Google searches, which would inform everyone who this guy was. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yep. Well, but you know, the flip side of that, Ange, though, is social media is still fleeting. I mean, you think about Twitter. You know, Twitter goes crazy. There's all these posts on there. But then, you know, four days later, you Google it, you're going to have a hard time finding it. And uh, so, I don't know. Maybe it would have disappeared. Who knows? Our buddy Joe X says, I was bummed when Jeffity Johns <laughs> introduced the new Crimson Avenger, and it wasn't Umberto. Because if you remember at the end of the Crimson Avenger story, right, there was right. the young man. Yeah. So he goes, um, Oh, I'm sorry. I was about to read the next comment and tribute to Joe X, but that would be incorrect. It is for Chris Franklin. Chris Franklin said, I never read the Rip Hunter story. You know, there's a theme here. I'm not sensing Chris that you didn't read these stories. But I got a double dose of Crimson Avenger by buying both the original DC Comics Presents issues and the year's best comic stories digest on the stands. Did I hear someone say digest, Rob? Ooh. Uh, and I didn't mind paying for it again. Even as a kid, I realized the story was pretty transcendent for the time. Other than the Earth 2 Batman, I didn't think superheroes died. And honestly, they didn't do it that much back then. Unless you're Airwave. Um, exactly, unless you're Larry Jordan, yeah. <laughs> the fact that this story took place on Earth 2 once again proved that the parallel dimension concept was a great avenue for DC writers and artists to really push the boundaries of their storytelling into avenues they couldn't explore – in Earth, uh, on Earth One, uh, the mainstream stories. And of course, DC shut it down a few years later. Sigh. Add me to the list of those who were disappointed Umberto didn't become Crimson Avenger 2. Totally missed opportunity. He follows up with great stinger at the end with what I believe was the Crimson's only speaking line on JLU. And of course, Rob's detective chimp gibberish has become your sit ubu sit good boy. He follows up with that again. <laughs> nice. Mark Bigger Wright says, I propose that Shag start a new Doctor Who podcast with Rob be tied to a chair and forced to attend every episode. Oh, gosh. That would be as painful for me as it would be for Rob, just hearing him complain. Oh. I don't know. I, no, I don't dislike Doctor Who. No, that's not. I don't think that's fair. I, don't, I didn't dislike. I watched a couple Doctor Whos and I just kind of went, okay. I didn't dislike it, but it just didn't drive me to want to watch more of them. But it didn't, it's not like I, I, didn't, I don't dislike it at all, actually. Now, let's be honest. That is not what you watched. You watched some episodes of Carrie and Gillian on a sci-fi show featuring Doctor Who. Is that one of those like not considered good Doctor Who? I don't know. No, they're great. But okay. as I understand it, you watched it for Karen Gillian, not well, Doctor that, Who. That was where I started because why not? You're going to try and hook me into it. Why not start me with that? <laughs> I don't know. Fair enough. Yeah, Fair enough. No, it was fine. It was fine. I am. No, I am. I have no no problems with Doctor Who at all. And and someday we may have a Doctor Who show on this network. It has certainly been discussed. Right now, though, if you want to hear me talk about Doctor Who, you should check out the Two True Freaks Network. There is a show called Who True Freaks that used to be run by our very very good friend uh, Sean Engel, who passed away. And the show went on hiatus for about a year and a half. But just recently, our buddy Dave Walker has decided that uh, we want to bring the show back, sort of to honor Sean, but also to celebrate our love of Doctor Who. So the show is back and kicking and we just released an episode on the old john pertwee story invasion of the dinosaurs once we're done with the, the who's who name we could just use that for our doctor who show oh well, maybe who knows i don't know right, well, if somebody would get the damn legion episodes done we'd be able to move forward but hey the know. good news is episode two of who's who and the legion is finally in the can and recorded so now it's just a matter of editing that four hour monstrosity to get it out okay so that's going to do it for our feedback for the previous two installments of Whatever Happened To. I cannot wait to read your feedback for these episodes with uh, Richard Dragon woo, and Airwave. So, where, Rob, where should they go to leave that feedback? Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. 
Awesome. Go to the Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast page, because, you know, that makes sense with Airwave. Anyway, uh, go there. You'll find the post for here. You will also find a gallery post where we'll pick out some of the images from these pages, and I'm pretty confident that Airwave 2, the wife's going to have some posts up there. But anyway, uh, you can find some of the pages from these stories. You can go out there and check those out so you can sort of follow along. Please, please uh, include the panel of Richard dragon answering his mail in his costume please put that i absolutely up. will that Thank will you. definitely be there i promise you that okay. <laughs> um the, the arrangement we have is i do the gallery posts and rob does the editing so i make sure on an episode like tonight i have to take 42 takes on everything because uh the number <laughs> of edits you won't know they're here for this episode are astounding <laughs> all right rob why don't you tell folks where they can find you on the social medias because quite frankly with this head cold i don't have enough oxygen to get all that out I'm on Twitter at Treasury Comics, at Film and Water Pod, and at Pod underscore Dylan. And he, he skipped like seven of them, guys. Those are, those are the main three ones you have to worry about. It's also the old Aquaman shrine thing, right? That's really barely mine anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we can find me as Firestorm Fan. Hell, why not? Let's, let's play this game. You can find me as Firestorm Fan. You can find me as JLI Podcast. And you can find me as Once Upon a Geek, all on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook if you just look for my stupid name. You can also find me as Firestorm Fan over there as well. But most importantly, just go find us at Fire and Water Podcast, which is FW Podcast on Twitter or on Facebook. We have our own page for the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I think that is going to do it. I don't know that our catchphrase really works in this instance, but we're going to use it anyway, folks. Until next time, fan the flame and ride the wave. Everybody was kung fu. They fought with expert timing There were funky Chinamen From funky Chinatown They were chopping them up They were chopping them down It's an ancient Chinese art And everybody knew their part From a fainting to a slip And a kicking from the hip Everybody was kung fu Why? What would brick? How you been, man? I'm doing just great. How are you? Different. My reasoning was sound, but you didn't agree. So uh, look where we are. We're here. We're doing it. <laughs> so thanks for asking. I'm doing great, too. Uh <laughs>